Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, join me and Daniel Yang on Frontlines. The Frontline program seeks to encourage and equip pastors and planners to better understand and navigate the current and future trends in church ministry. Each episode invites thought leaders and advanced practitioners in ministry to inform and inspire pastors and planners as they continue what they do on the field. Hey, Frontlines, welcome today. This is our exponential webinar show, Frontlines, and uh, it's Frontlines everything, Frontline ministry, Frontline church planning. Um, and I'm here with Daniel Yang. He's my co-host, partner in crime, yo, yo. And, uh, director of the Sin Institute, and uh, just a fine guy all around. And uh, me, there's not much to say about me, I guess, but uh, you're here. Yeah, and you you're have pretty, to listen you're to pretty me. fine too, Peyton. Pretty, pretty, pretty fly for a white guy, right? It's not bad. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I'm here with Di Hanke, and Di Hanke is, is our guest today. I am so excited to have him on for multiple reasons. Um, number one, he was my best friend in the UK. We would say best mates when I lived there for 12 years as a missionary. And uh, But that's not why he's on here, right? And we don't get to just have our best friends on here. But it, out of all the planners that, that I always think, man, I wish people knew this guy. And of course, the Atlantic Ocean is, is, a, is a huge dividing factor. Um, but for Americans, you know, let me, let me just kind of walk you through who Dai is a little bit. Uh, he is a multiple church planet. Well, let me put it this way. He's a gospel animal. He is a minister over in Wales, UK. Um, he came originally from Pontypool. He'll tell you a little bit about his background. And he ministered in a place called Trevethan, which was a valley town. He'll tell you a little bit more about that. And then today he's ministering at a church called Redeemer. Now he's got multiple books out, The Hardcore. He's got Offensive, Cross German Ministry. He's got a series of uh, children's books that are just dynamite if you're looking for children's books for your kids. He's an MC DJ. And I remember when I first planted, I had to um, do an event. And we did it for youth and we pretty much kicked off this like pretty radical uh, uh, youth ministry that went on and kids got saved. And I'll never forget, we're in this pub and the music's pumping out there and uh, I was drum and bass and uh, all the adults, all these drunk people outside, they couldn't come in. They're like, oh, come on, mate, you're wasting this on young people. Come on, do this for us. And the first time I ever heard of Die was I heard about this guy in the capital city of Wales who there was this bus that would go around. It would do like MC DJ stuff. And I remember hearing it was just kind of like a, a, a local legend and, you know, but I never met him. And then I went to this uh, precepts ministries, you know, with Kay Arthur, I went to precepts and there was this thing and I walk into this room and there's all of these like dudes, like old people, like in tweed, tweed jackets, you know, like coats with leather elbows. And, you know, like they look like they would go out and smoke a, smoke a pipe afterwards, you know, like, Oh, that was, that was jolly good. You know? And I look across this room and there's this dude that looks like me, you know, there's this guy, he's got like a hoodie on, he's kind of rough. And <laughs> I remember we look at each other at one point and we just went like, what's up? Like, you know, one of these things is not like the others. And on the break, we just started talking. And from that moment, I mean, we pretty much just became instant friends. And at the time we were planning back in 2004-05, it was really before Acts 29 came on scene. Di would eventually uh, end up being the director of Acts 29 Wales. Together, we formed a network called New Breed, which I still run in the States to this day. And, uh, and, and anything else about Di, he's got four kids, 
He had the biggest dog I've ever seen at one time. I mean, I, I could just go on. This is a guy super respect, and it's so good to have you on here, Di. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks, man. That's a n- nice intro. <laughs> I, remember that. I remember that KR for Bible study thing. That was a funny day. <laughs> I remember our, our first thing was like, how did you end up here? You know, like, know, like, like we just... <laughs> So, uh, Di, tell us, uh, you, you've planted a number of churches. You planted Hill City Church in the really rough council state of Trevathan in the Valley communities. People don't really know uh, what that is, and now you're planting in the capital city, Redeemer. Tell us a little bit, um, t- tell people about what it was like, because here we think urban. Like, we don't really have uh, the same as a, as a council state, like here in America, you might say a trailer park, but even then it's not the same. Tell us a little bit about what a council state is and what it was like to plant Hill City there. Yeah. So in the UK, um, a lot of the social housing, so housing where, um, the, I guess the state is the landlord and they sort of lease out the, uh, the housing to tenants. Um, there's, there's, there's council housing all over the place, but often there'll be a, a concentration of council housing in a, in a community and that would be known as a council estate. It'd be a, a, an estate, um, of houses deliberately built, you know, for the purpose of, you know, gathering a lot of people together. You get, you get private estates as well. Like, you know, where you get like, you know, private houses, but council estates are generally, um, social houses, cheaper housing, and would have a reputation of having people who are on um, lower incomes, and there'd be probably a lot more kind of social issues uh, on council estates, um, or you know, that'd be the, the the reputation at least. And so, if you if you say council estate in the UK, people would normally think of a bit rougher, a bit more kind of um, dodgy. Certainly, certainly, some council estates have very bad reputations. Got to say, it's not all fair because some some council estates are great places. It depends on the size of it. It depends on how many how many generations have grown up there. It's interesting. There's one council estate I used to live on in Cardiff. Um, it was a first generation council estate. It was built in the 70s, and I moved there in the 90s, early early noughties. And um, there was just no sense of ownership or belonging there. Everyone had been moved in there from other parts of the city, and so everyone hated it. And so because they hated it, they trashed it. Um, I remember like, you know, being amazed, like there's really nice modern buildings, but you know, they were all boarded up and burnt down and, and just, and just, it was just trash and it was because nobody wanted to be there. Um, and oftentimes, you know, the, the, the government or the local councils can use, um, council states as a place to just, you know, drop off, um, you know, people that they, 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 they don't want to put anywhere else. And if you get the wrong mix of families in the community, you can just drag the community down. Uh, likewise, you know, if those people have moved on, then often the community can come up again, but social housing, social problems, pretty much. It's a council state. Hey, Di, I mean, uh, that, that helps me to understand a little bit better of your context. But, you know, uh, here in the States, we always hear so much about the UK, how it's further down the road in terms of secularism. And uh, I know, I mean, obviously, Wells is famous for the Welsh revivals. Um, and I think in some ways, uh, that's what I think about Wales. But I also know that today, I mean, you know, slightly half of uh, Welsh people would consider themselves Christians, you know, over a third would not. I mean, that's that's kind of where the U.S. is almost at as well. Can you give us a picture of kind of like the spiritual state uh, of, of, of Wales and yeah. and how that's actually changing the way that you're approaching mission this time around? Absolutely. I mean, I'd be amazed if half of people in Wales claim to be a Christian. Like, um, I, I, I think it's probably more like 5% would claim to have some kind of Christian kind of conviction. And probably maybe half of that, you know, even like less than half would be actual Bible-believing Christians who've had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Um, certainly, you know, Christianity is is off the map now. It, it's just, it, it's gone. It, it's, you know, it, we are in a mission context. Um, there's a, our national sport in Wales is called rugby. You might've heard of it. It's like American football without the pads. Um, and it's a pretty kind of rough game. Um, we love it though. And you know, it's, it's very popular in the UK, but there's um, a phrase that I got taught when I was in school playing rugby, which is the bigger they are, the harder they fall. So, you know, if you've got a big guy on your opposite team, hit him hard because like, it'll hurt him more if he hits the deck than it'll hurt you. And so I think that, I think that's what's happened in Wales. Like we were once upon a time, probably one of the most, Christian nations in the whole world 
Uh, we, we, you know, we're tiny country, three, three million people, uh, you know, small, insignificant, kind of like, you know, often treated like the UK's armpit. But we were sending, you know, back in, you know, there's a revival in 1904, there's one in 1859, there's like a history of revivals, you know, chapels all over, you know, the place, every street, there's a chapel, you know, everyone went to, went to chapel, whether they believed in Jesus or not, it was just part of the culture. It's a very kind of um, passionate culture. So when people were passionate about Jesus, you know, it just manifests itself in song and then just like, you know, passionate proclamation. Some great preachers have come from Wales, but the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And I think that now it's actually one of the most desperate places in Europe. Um, you know, there's a dearth of um, strong churches. And, you know, sometimes I look around at all the empty chapel buildings and, you know, they've been turned into um, bingo halls or carpet warehouses or mosques. And, I'm, and I, just, I, I just hear the devil laughing, like, you know, he's just, he's just mocking, you know, Hundred years ago, well, you, you you may have been you know one way a hundred or so years ago, but you know now look at you and you know genuinely you know we we we, we got Korea who like the South Korean church was essentially you know, the, the gospel was brought there by a Welshman um, from not far from where I grew up, a guy, a guy called Robert Jermaine Thomas. He, he took the gospel to Korea, paid with his life, and now the Koreans are sending missionaries to Wales because you know we're you know wearing and and so are the Chinese and you know we got. Um, loads of nations where there seems to be more Christians coming from other nations to help us and, and us being a, you know, a great sending nation, um, which is humbling to be honest. I can tell you if you're not a bonehead and you want to preach the gospel, go to Wales because they don't need any boneheads. But if, if you want to take the gospel, I can tell you, I spent 12 years of my life there as a missionary. I wake up every day, no exaggeration, wishing I was still there. That's a long story. There's a reason I'm not. Has to do with adopting my my little girl. But here's the deal: that place, yeah, there's more than enough mission in Wales for sure. Yeah, amen. There is. There so, Di, um, tell us a little bit about. Um, okay, so I want to get to uh, kind of our subject here: um, uh, businesses mission. You uh, started um, a company called Manumit, and I know that's a bit of a story. Um, that, that, that works particularly your passion about trafficking, um, you know, stopping trafficking, anti-slavery, that kind of stuff. Um, unpack kind of that story because when I left Wales, you were doing Acts 29 and you were literally, uh, you were planting and you, you were kind of like a model, like other people were looking like, I didn't just go where the money is. He went where the need is. He went into some of the darkest holes you know, in that you can find and implanted there, and you you really inspired people to do that. But you continue to inspire by kind of, kind of pushing out like the fact that like we talk here in America, like doing business as mission, where like people are millionaires are are ready to drop money on people, right? But in Wales, like you're going into depressed areas and you're starting business as mission. How does that look? How did that happen? Where did that vision and passion come from? Okay, it's going to require a bit of a monologue, if that's all right. So you know, I'll have to go and totally down, man. Take so, your time. <laughs> yeah, so I was I was pastoring in the valleys in a town called Trevethin, and I was it's where I'm from. It's a town I grew up, um, and I loved it there. I still am very close to the church there. Like you know, I didn't fall out with the church at all. Um, loved being the pastor there. But one day, this mad thing happened, and I won't go into the, the full details of the backstory. But I had a vision from God, without sounding like the Blues Brothers too much. Um, I, I had. Uh, I was at a, a meeting when the Lord, by the Spirit, gave me a vision of a, a prostitute walking around the red light district in Cardiff. Um, and I audibly heard the voice of God shouting at me, go and rescue her, go and rescue her, go and rescue her. And that was on the 6th of May, 2012. And it was the maddest thing, apart from my conversion, when I actually you know, encountered the, you know, Jesus for the first time and he saved me. Apart from that, it was the most profoundly impacting thing that's ever happened to me. I knew I'd heard God's voice. I'd never, never heard it before or since, nothing like that. But I had this extreme moment where I, I and I, I was just burst into tears because I was like, God shouting at me. And it wasn't like an angry shout, but it was an urgent shout. And I was like, I was just, I, I was convinced I had to go to that area that night because somebody needed rescue. And so I drove there that night um, expecting to have to rescue someone just, curb crawling around this red light district looking for someone to rescue but there was no one there it was the weirdest thing it was like nothing happened so it's a bit of an anticlimax and I was, you know, I was there with my, you know, my fist clenched I was like ready to do whatever was needed but nothing, there was nothing to do so I got quite sort of confused I went home and said to my wife I was like babes God just shouted at me I don't know what to do about it and um, 
So she said, you know, she said, well, maybe God wasn't trying to get your attention about an individual person. Maybe God's trying to get your attention about an issue rather than about a person. And so I thought that's wise counsel. All my best counsels come from my wife throughout my life. And so, um, so she said, well, what is happening for, you know, for the gospel um, among the red light district, prostitutes, etc., in Cardiff. I was like, I don't really know. So I did a bit of research and I, you know, I, I touched base with a lady who's now a good friend of mine who works with um, women who have been, who, who are in um, sex work, either on the streets, or sorry, both on the streets and also in brothels. And she seeks to reach out to them with the gospel. And so I said to her, you know, I've had this mad thing. God just shouted at me. I don't know what to do about it. Can we have a chat about it? And so she said, okay. And as we talked things out, um, she said, look, die on the front end, there's not a lot you can do. On the front end, reaching women um, who are involved in this work, you know, firstly, you're a bloke. There's not a lot you can do. But secondly, you know, there's a lot of us, you know, on the team and there's other people doing it as well. Like the, the need isn't to reach the women at that point that you're where they're at. There's people that can do that. You're a bloke. You probably aren't one of them. And she said, on the far end, there's also um, a lot that can be, uh, a, a lot that's happening. There's safe houses, there's refuges, there's um, addiction centers, um, you know, rehabs, but that's taken care of as well. Like, you know, if we have women that need to get out of the city or get out of the sex industry, we, we've got places we can send them. So that, that's kind of covered as well. I said, well, what, well, why is God shouting at me then? And she said, well, the bit which is missing is the bit in the middle. So I said, well, what's the bit in the middle? And she said, well... What we, what we need is to know where we can point these women who are living in community. So if they needed to go to church or they wanted to connect with, you know, with, with you know, a body of believers, we would, you know, we, we're struggling to know what sort of church we could send them to. And so I, said, I asked a bit of a stupid question, and I know it's a stupid question. I said, well, where do, where, where do prostitutes live in Cardiff? Like? And obviously they live everywhere. Like, you know, it isn't like just one area. But there was a particular concentration, and there still is a particular concentration, of um, vulnerable and exploited women and women who are engaged in this sort of work um, in the inner city of Cardiff, in the area where I'd been given this vision. And so I said, well, is there a church in that community right now where you would be comfortable sending your, your, your ladies to? And she said, no. And so I said, well, do you, think if, do you think if I planted a church in that community, that might make sense of what God shouted at me for? She said, die, that's exactly what's needed. So essentially, just talking to this woman and not wanting to reinvent the wheel and not wanting to just come in like the cavalry, it ended up us agreeing that perhaps a church needed to be planted in the red light district area of Cardiff. So I sort of did, you know, did what was needed. I, I didn't rush into it. I didn't want to leave my church in Pontypool badly. Um, so although that happened in 2012, it wasn't until 2016 that I actually left. I wanted to leave well. Everything happened which could have happened to try and stop that happening. There's all sorts of problems, all sorts of issues, all sorts of like chaos. Um, not my fault, I don't think, but like, you know, just stuff which just made it very difficult to leave until it was the right time to leave. And God, you know, over, the, over those four years, um, was just I spent time researching trafficking, researching prostitution, researching exploitation, um, slavery, and just just got more and more and more educated and just started praying. Uh, started a prayer movement in the city. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer that the best thing you can do when you don't know what to do is pray. And I didn't really know what to do, so I started a monthly prayer meeting. We just prayed um, in that community every month, uh, once a month, every month for the whole of 2013. Um, and that's really where even now there's some of the people that are on my, on my, in my church, even living on my street, um, you know, we're, we're part of that prayer meeting and that's how, you know, we kind of got to know each other and, um, and that kind of developed into a charity uh, called uh, Red Community that I run. It's a charity with a specific focus on, uh, it's a gospel centered, um, response to human trafficking and modern slavery in Wales. And part of our pro one of the projects that we set up through Red Community was a project called Embrace, which was a befriending project where we basically train up local Christians, um, men and predominantly women, to befriend women who've been trafficked and rescued and are now like, you know, trying to rebuild their lives in community. We, we train up women to just befriend them, to, to be their friends, just to offer nothing more glamorous and friendship, at least two hours a week of just like going for coffees, going to libraries, going to birthday parties, um, going for walks in the park, whatever it is, just like befriending these women and just offering them, you know, gospel friendship. And very early on in the Embrace project, we started getting feedback from the people that were befrienders saying, Di, the woman I'm, I'm befriending, she really wants to get back into work. Like she wants to start rebuilding her life, but 
the thought of a nine to five, five days a week job in the secular workplace is quite daunting. Is there anything that we could do to kind of like help to make that step back into full-time employment an easier step? So as, as a charity, we had a chat about it, but we're a charity is like a, a not-for-profit. Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, or you, you have a word from Denny in America for, for charity. Um, I, can't, I can't remember what your word is. Yeah, we just say non-profit. Yeah, yeah, one of them. Uh, so we had a chat, and my, my, my dream was, and I started actually a conversation with Starbucks, would you believe? My, my dream was to get these women um, trained up as baristas so that they could have a qualification which would be internationally useful. And wherever they went, they had a qualification, a skill where they could, you know, they, they could it makes them less re trafficable. Because one of the things I, was, I learned was that the, the re trafficking rate is terrifying. You know, just because somebody's been rescued. If nothing's done about the vulnerability that made them vulnerable, that made them exploitable in the first place, they can just get re-trafficked again. And oftentimes the same, the same vulnerabilities remain, the same networks remain in place, and it's still quite sketchy. So I thought some kind of a barista qualification would be a helpful way of, making, of giving them a chance of getting alternative employment. And I was quite far down the path of Starbucks, but then the, the girl I was connecting with, I think she ever left or you know um, got sacked or something, so that dried up. So I said to my charity, let's just start a coffee shop, innit? Um, and they were like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. But then one of the trustees very wisely said, Di, you don't want to pack a coffee shop full of women who've been trafficked. Like that's a, such a socially demanding environment for people who have been like, you know, through what these guys have been through, like that's not going to work. And plus, you know, if, if our USP is we're offering employment to survivors of modern slavery, everyone who comes in is going to know that that woman was, you know, was forced into prostitution or forced into, you know, um, you know, whatever else, you know, it, um, that, you know, servitude that they, 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 they've suffered. And so um, he said, that, that's not a good idea. I was like, ah, okay. He said, but, you know, why don't we try something else? Let's try setting up a coffee roastery. I was like, well, what, how does that work? So, I mean, I love coffee. Obviously, coffee is Christian crack cocaine. So, like, you know, I'm, I'm as addicted as the next man. But I didn't know how you made it, apart from putting it in, you know, putting hot water on it. And so he just explained, look, you can do it in an anonymous industrial unit, it's quiet. You know, you can sort of make it, you can safeguard it. No one even, no one even needs to know what's happening in there. And it's, you know, you can just employ a small number of people, put the emphasis on some, on support and, um, uh, and just rebuilding lives and on re regaining trust. And so we did, we, we pushed a few doors and long story short, um, we set up a business separate to the charity. The thinking being, if the business bombs, we don't want to take the charity with it. Mm -hmm. um, and likewise, if a business explodes in a good way, we don't want to sort of like have all the complications, you know, you know, and sort of drag the charity into that. And so we just sort of set it up as a separate business. Myself and one of the other trustees, a really good friend of mine called Nick, um, we set that up together back in 2017. Uh, we started and uh, just started to employ survivors of modern slavery to roast coffee. That's a long story short. Yeah. Man, that's awesome. Uh, I think so many times when people think about, about business as missions, they think about it as a financial front to, to do like business or to do ministry under the table. Obviously that's not what you're talking about. Um, I mean, it's so much of what you just described is really building a pathway for <clears throat> some of the women that you've worked come out of the sex industry, uh, in, and to be able to have a dignified way to make a living, but also be discipled. Can you talk more about how the relationship is between red community, which is the uh, charity that you're talking about manument, which is the business roaster coffee roaster. And then, uh, you know, your church planting, you know, redeemer, like what's the relationship specifically? How do you split your time? Uh, it doesn't sound like you're doing this for money. This is all ministry all around. You know, just trying to make a paycheck. Yeah. The mad thing is I don't get paid for any of it. I don't get paid by the church. I don't get paid by the charity. I don't get paid by the, by the coffee either. So, and, when I think it's, and it's important for people to hear that our listeners to hear that, like when they hear business as mission, I don't want them to think that that's a way to make money while you're doing mission. No, not at all. I mean, what you're, what you're talking about is, I don't, think that's, sometimes. I don't think that's completely illegitimate. I mean, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that Paul probably got paid for his tents, but, um, but certainly for me, um, it's all just been like trying to follow the breadcrumbs a little bit, just trying to be obedient. And every time God's given me a nudge to like be faithful to do it. Now I've been, I've been living by faith 
Um, ever since I started doing gospel ministry back in 1999, I've never had a proper salary. I, I still haven't got a pension. Um, everyone freaks out when you hear that. I'm just banking on one of my kids hitting the big time and sorting me out when I'm old. But, um, you know, that, that might not happen. But, you know, I, I don't get paid a lot of money. I do what I'm doing because God's told me to do it. And I'm more scared of saying no to God than, you know, than anything. And so um, the relationship sort of breaks down as, um, before, well, I mean, it's hard to talk about it, pre-COVID and post-COVID because, I mean, everything changed with COVID, didn't it? Um, but in, in, a, in a normal world, pre-COVID, I was probably three days a week do, uh, doing stuff for the church, probably two a day to a day and a half a week doing Manumit and probably half a day a week, if maybe two days a month, Red Community. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's all in the same, you know, it's all, everything happens in the same area. We're, we're in the same community. So, like, you know, I, I live in the same community as, um, as where that vision was. Um, you know, so we, I'm a big believer in living incarnationally where you want to have an impact. So, you know, we don't do any sort of driving in and driving out again. You know, we live locally. The, you know, the coffee is roasted locally, although no one knows where, cause we've got an anonymous unit. Um, the, the church is in the same community and that's a cool story as well, by the way, we, we got given up one of those old abandoned church buildings. There was a church that was about to close and we got an we got given it for free. And uh, so that was quite cool. We were a house church until then. And my vision was to be a house church movement. But when you get offered something like that in a community like ours, you know, and it was, it was the right move for our church at that time. So, you know, um, and it's a hugely diverse community. So one of the areas where Redeemer has kind of taken on almost a life of its own, regardless of, it was nothing to do with why I moved to the inner city. We, we moved to the inner city to respond to that call of God. But I mean, our ministry to the nations in, in this is a big difference between the, the, Hill City Church I planted in the valleys, which was, I would say, 97, 98% white um, and Welsh white, most of them as well. Like, you know, nobody's ever moved out of the community. You know, it's just like, you know, it's just gloriously Welsh. Um, the Welsh members of the church where I am now are the, the significant minority. We've got twice as many Nigerians as we've got Welsh people in uh, in our church. We, I think we had, we had a Sunday um, when we could, you know, where we, we were packing the, you know, the kind of services out because we, we, we'd eat together before um, church every Sunday. We've got a massive emphasis on hospitality. So people would just come and eat our food and sometimes they, they stay for church, sometimes they, they just go. But you know, I think one Sunday we had about um, maybe 50 people there and I think it was 24 nations represented. It was crazy. It was, just, you know, it was so many different nations rep, uh, present, you know, from Africa, from Asia, from um, Americas, uh, from, from across Europe. And so the church is a crazy diverse church. Um, so like that's brought it, it's, its own set of challenges as well as, there's, you know, there's a beauty in it um, because we, we, we celebrate Revelation 7 every Sunday. You know, we just celebrate the fact that people pray in different languages and people have different worship styles and uh, people, you know, have very different kind of backgrounds. And, you know, when we were eating together, we, people would bring their own foods and we celebrate their cultures through food. So that, you know, that was a real enriching thing. And COVID has ripped the heart out of our hospitality ministry, which I'm devastated about. But, you know, the kind of heart is still there. And, you know, uh, so, but it also brings this unique set of pastoral problems. You know, when people don't speak English very well, you know, you think you've told somebody some pastoral guidance and they completely missed it. And then you go try and help them to sort of like work out following Jesus. Some of them have only been following Jesus for two minutes and, and they don't speak English. And it's messy. It's, it's, it's the messiest thing I've ever been involved in in my life. You know, I'm trusting that Jesus is still building his church, but I've got no idea what cement he's using. <laughs> if, if that's the messiest thing you've been through, that's saying a lot. Cause I remember, I remember kids like running in your door once when you open it and ripping off your TV before you could stop them, you know, pushing past everybody, ripping your DVD player when they, boom, out they went. So it's brother, different. that's it's different. Like, so to me now I look back on like, <laughs> on the kind of inner city crime stuff and that's like, although it's, it was rough and it was like upsetting, it was normal, but, there's just this whole new kind of like world of like, you know, I mean, I, I probably, I probably know more about asylum law than I do about theology at the moment. Like I just spend so much time with asylum seekers, like, you know, and like, you know, just trying to help people to make sense of court situations. And you know, you, you just get, you just get sucked into this and all the stuff which comes with it, man. And it's beautiful, but it's bonkers. Like, I don't. I want to, I want to pull back a little bit because I think you're hitting on something that's so important for, you know, typically our exponential frontlines listeners, because most of us are traditional church pastors. I think a lot of us are, 
And um, I mean, just hearing your story, what you're you're showing many of us, which I think, you know, in some ways, a lot of our cities in North America is headed towards is when you are a missionary that you want to engage the issues of society. Um, and then you're dealing with the complexity of like immigration, which I mean, again, uh, the UK in some ways is a couple of uh, maybe a decade or two ahead of us in, in the North America. Um, your, your church doesn't look like the traditional church of, you know, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, no. You, you don't do uh, ministry the same way uh, that you might have, you know, 40 years ago when, when we were starting churches more so as worship services. And so I think you've, you've, you've articulated well for us the, the challenge, but also, you know, your, your model and your solution. And how, how, can, I want to dig a little bit deeper into um, being a pastor of a urban, uh, you know, low income area where you're, where there's a lot of immigrants, like what are some of the bright spots that you're seeing with your church community that, that, you know, that, man, if I wasn't planting in this way, I don't think we would see these things happen. Um, you know, what are some of the unique things that you're seeing based on your engagement of Cardiff and the way that you're doing it, that you think, man, this is like, you know, there's other ways to do it, but this, this is the reason why we're doing it this way. I think there's a couple of things that like, to me, as I said, the most important thing to, for, from my perspective is living among the people that you want to reach. I just think hit and run evangelism is, it, it just doesn't work. Like I think the people have been trying that for a long time in Wales. Like they'll, They'll come in, they'll fly in an area, they'll put posters up, they'll put on an event, they'll do it, and then, and then they're gone. And there's just nothing until the next time they, they, they turn up and they do it. And I just think that the Lord has called his people to be a community on mission. And I think that there's, there's nothing more compelling than a community of Christians who do seven-day-a-week Christianity together, where they're at the school gates every day of the week, and they're supporting one another, and they're praying for one another, they're caring for one another. And uh, if, if something goes down, like, they're there, and the neighbors will see that they're there, and they see, like, there's these people who stick together, and they work th- and they work through their crap, and they, and they forgive each other. And um, I think, that I, and I just think it's just that that's how people see. Um, you know, this is how the world will know you're my disciples. If you love one another, if you can't see that community in action, then you don't see the love in the same way. You could, Sunday services it can be the fakest things in the world, but you can't fake authentic community. So um, I reckon that um, from my perspective, um, living among the people that you're trying to reach is key. And I think that's why there's always been a problem reaching rough communities because you've got people that will identify there's a community that has need, but the solution really involves people moving in to be part of the solution. It's like, let's invest money in, you know, somebody whose job it is, is to go and do stuff and then come out and do stuff and come out. And that might work in some contexts, but it's never worked in the context I've been ministering. So living there is, is one. And the second I would say, which is huge. And I didn't get this when I first, planted Hill City Church, the church up in the valleys, the the church I used to lead. That was very much, it was a preaching center. I was very strong on proclamational evangelism. I still am, by the way. I think that you have to proclaim the gospel. You know, that's how faith, faith comes through hearing. So I believe in that. I haven't dumbed that down. But I've just, along with my wife, just discovered a real passion for hospitality, for opening your home and just opening your heart and opening your, your lives to people, whether or not they embrace Jesus or not. Um, just you know, being willing to just sort of like show something of the radical um, you know, welcome of Christ and, and the radical you know, reaching in of Christ. And I think that's been huge, not just for me and my wife, but for my children as well. My children have grown up, you know, by God's grace. Like, m- my kids are age uh, now, they're age 10, 12. I've got two twins who are 10. And I've got a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. When, when we moved here, that was obviously four, uh, four or five years ago, they were, you know, they were um, six and eight and uh, 10 or something like that. And they've just seen some amazing things happen around their dining room table and in their back garden. And just, and they just seen like, you know, friendship, breed discipleship, breed salvation, breed, you know, um, church growth and people that like, you know, came in as strangers and are people that they just want, they, they, they want with them for Christmas. And um, that's been beautiful. Like, and I think there's something which, uh, Whatever context we're in, whether it's rich or poor, whether it's black or white, whether it's mixed, you know, whether it's in the, in the West or in Africa or whatever, hospitality is an amazing way of reaching people, especially when you're not only the one that wants to give hospitality, but you're willing to receive hospitality. There's this one family in our church 
family of Syrians who walked to the UK from Syria from, um, from fleeing ISIS. Seven months it took them physically, emotionally, you're just wrecked and still now very much feeling the impact and the PTSD effect, you know, effects of what happened. But we befriended them as Muslims. Uh, we invited them to our house. Um, my wife decided to make Syrian pizza. And when we invited them over, the, the, the matriarch of the family, Mama, uh, we call her, um, she, she showed Michelle how to make pizzas and she was like smashing his dough on the table and like was beating up with her fists and my kids were loving it. And, you know, we had this great time and they had an Arabic friend um, who, was, who was also Muslim, came and was like translating. So she was translating our gospel conversation for these Syrians into Arabic. Um, and they've since come to Christ, uh, both of them. They were baptized last year. Um, but the maddest thing was, it wasn't like that we invited them into our house, although that was quite a mad thing for my kids. These, these two people, um, a mother and daughter, and their son actually, so there's, there's three of them came. Never met him before. Crazy stories, like just showing us videos on their phones of all the kind of bullets and bombs of Syria. We had to ask them to stop because it was so traumatic for the kids. But the following week, they invited us to their house and they had no furniture. They had, um, you know, those, those big sort of reflective um, screens that photographers use for like reflecting the light, you know, and stuff. That was their tablecloth on the floor. I don't know where they got it from, <laughs> but they just laid this big reflective screen on the floor and just brought in all this mad Syrian food that literally was terrifying to look at. Like some of it was like, what the heck is that? And we just made our children eat it. So for the sake of not being rude, but like for the first to receive their hospitality as well as to offer our hospitality was massive. Otherwise, it's just a patronizing gospel. Do you know what I mean? There's, but there's just real meeting, this real merging of culture, this real affirmation of one another, regardless of like, you know, what our starting point was. And beautifully, you know, they've come to Christ and they're precious sisters and everyone in the church calls mama, mama now. Do you know what I mean? And it's, uh, Great. It, it's beautiful. It's so cool, man. And, you know, just one of the things I've always appreciated about you, Dai, is you, um, it's interesting you talked about that delay of four years in the beginning because you and I were pretty tight and you know, the one thing I learned about you and still to this day, watch you, um, you're fun to watch. If you guys have never, um, you can go to at die hanky on Twitter. You've got to follow die on Twitter. That's, that's, that's a fun ride. But the cool thing about die is, you know, in, in America, die, you, you know how it is over there. There's no celebrities in the UK. If you're a celebrity in the UK, probably something's wrong. Right. But if, if you're just, you know, you're doing your thing. That's how it works over there because you don't have swaths of Christian people. If you're a Christian, you're in the minority. Mm -hmm. And because of that, the, the thing is, is that um, what's hard for Americans to understand is uh, the whole celebrity in America equals doer and, it, and, and it's not real. So the thing I've always appreciated about you is kind of like we we're saying before, you're a talker, you're a great talker, but you're a doer. So a lot of this stuff that you're talking about here, this is all the cutting edge stuff that the talkers in America talk about. But in America, talk is cheap. And often people will talk about stuff they never do. And so to, to chat to you about this, one of the things I've always noticed, you just get on with it. You just do it. You don't wait for the perfect setup right? You don't wait for everything to be in place for you. You'll, you'll, you'll go in, you've done your research, like you said, for four years, but um, are you self-aware of that? Like, are you kind of self-aware about, I will do, I will run in and do things sometimes um, not in a bad way, but like it, there is an impetus in you where you're, you go and get it done. Have you, have you kind of reflected on that a bit? Yeah, and it, I think it has its benefits and it also has its challenges because people who do stuff can often do things because that's what they want to do rather because it's the right thing to do. I think as I'm getting older, I'm getting a bit more wise to the fact that a lot, you know, a lot of the things I've done by God's grace, they've worked. Not everything has worked. And I, I've always lived with a sort of slight fear, if that's not too ungodly a word, but a slight fear of, I, I, I'm more scared of like looking back on things and saying, I wish I'd had a go than like looking back on things and saying, well, I tried that and that completely blew up. I'm much more scared of like missing it than like, you know, than, than getting it wrong and having, having a, a stab at something. And I, I do think that there's a lot of people that just chat, chat a lot, but don't actually do anything. And I, yeah, I'm not guilty of that, but I am guilty. I think of having, you know, people that are close to me are increasingly realizing that because of the character that I've got, number one, um, number one, I think that I, I, I create chaos wherever I go because people who do things do things and get bored really quickly. 
And I've realized that like, that's not always a good thing. And starting something well is actually, this might sound cocky. And if it is, if it is cocky, I'm sorry about that. But um, I, f- I personally think it's easy to start things. And it's very difficult to, to, to leave things well, to, to have a, you know, to, and I think that I'm, by God's grace, I've never left a church badly. I've never left a group of people around who hate my guts. You know, and that, that, that's costly. You have to work at that. But like, by God's grace, you know, I, I want to finish things well. But increasingly, that means I think I have to probably start less things because I can't do a million things. I, I don't, I don't want to do a million things well. I want to do a couple of things excellently. And so I'm learning to sort of like be a bit more measured in what I do and don't do what I start and I don't start. And I also think that once you started something, then basically you stick at it until God tells you otherwise. There's some people seem to live as if they're always waiting for the next thing. You know, when the next thing comes, then that's going to be the thing. I, I think, I think that's, that's nonsense. Like I think that you, you do what God's told you to do and you do it with all your heart until he mm. tells you compellingly what's next. And then when he tells you what's next, don't dilly dally obey um but until he's told you then you're doing this and you need and you need to do it well otherwise you get this kind of fudgy kind of bit where you're waiting um you know to sort of like you know i'm not sure if i should be here but i'm also not sure what should be next and you just so you don't really do anything mm. you just kind of like procrastinate so i just think that like whatever you're doing do it fully and then as soon as you know god has told you to do something else then you know leave well and do that fully. And that requires godly people, in my life at least, godly people to talk things through with, understanding and discerning the will of God. You know, is this, is this just, you know, is this God or have I just had too much cheese today? You know, like, you know, and just having people that can speak into that, trusting the scriptures, trusting the spirit and trusting the church of God to sort of like, you know, help you to like make wise decisions. And to me, like, I think that the way I've often encourage people who are praying through whether they should take an opportunity or not it's just like do what you do what you're meant to be doing until not doing what you think you should be doing you know next feels like disobedience not to do it well as soon as as soon as you, you you get to that point where if i don't do this i can't look god in the eye and pray anymore because i know i'm disobeying him hmm. you're probably meant to be doing that but until you're at that point you just maybe just need to sort of be patient and be faithful and serve and so um, you know, in the meantime, Dad, we've got some, uh, we got some questions coming in here and I'm going to jump into some of them. If you, if you've got some questions for Di, go ahead and submit it there in the chat or in the Q and a function there. And we'll make sure that we get to as many of them as possible. Uh, some of the questions that have come in, uh, you, you're already starting to hit on some of them Di, but one of them being, um, in regards to how the, the three entities work together, uh, if they feed into each other at any point, specifically, you know, the church, the uh, charity, and then the, the business. Mm-hmm. And then uh, maybe a good follow-up to that, to that is also, personally, how do you split your time? You, you talked about that a little bit, but mm-hmm. do you have shared leadership across the three entities? Uh, can you talk a little bit about how they relate to each other? Yeah, okay. They're really helpful to think through. Um, so... There's people that have worked for me that are now in, in my church, people that have been baptized, people that have come to Christ, people that have worked for me who hate the church and have no intention of, of coming across the threshold. And, um, you know, and so um, you know, we didn't set the church up, the, uh, the, the business up, as a sort of sneaky way of doing mission. We set it up because we felt it was a good way of like serving people in the city who've been exploited and trying to genuinely help them and love them for the love of Christ. But that doesn't mean I'm not praying regularly for the people and I don't desire to share the love of Christ, which made me the kind of person that would want to do that with them. And so we do. And it is, you know, um, it is a beautiful, um, joyful gospel environment there. You know, um, we, we currently have three members of staff working for us at the moment, three different uh, ladies who, uh, who, who are roasting with us. Um, one of them has come to church a couple of times. Uh, the other two never have. Um, so we just seek to love them with the love of Christ. There's, uh, there's others who, you know, have, have come and have been baptized and have become part of the church family, and we, we love them dearly. Uh, and others who've come and gone and have never, you know, um, darkened the doors. Um, the, the red community thing, that's more kind of like a charity where like we basically just do the befriending project and we pray a lot and it's a great focal point for prayer, but it's a Wales wide thing, not a Cardiff based thing. And so it feels more of a kind of a, a prophetic call to people to just pray and seek to make, you know, 
just to sort of see, see, to pursue justice and mercy wherever they're at in Wales. Um, so there are people in my church who are trained befrienders and who have brought people to the church who they befriended. Um, you know, but that's, you know, I wouldn't say that there's a huge overlap between um, the red community stuff and either of the other two, the church and the, 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 the coffee business, I guess there's more. And then how do I sort of split my time between them? In many ways, because I'm not paid by any of them, I have the beautiful gospel fle- uh, flexibility to freestyle it a little bit. So there's different seasons. Um, so when I first started the church plant, I was probably mainly focusing on the church plant. I, I, I planted alone, just, just me and my wife. I know no, that was probably stupid, but then God sent a brother from the States, actually from um, Missouri, uh, or Misery as I call it, um, to him and, him and his family came and they've, they've joined the church. He's now a co-elder and he's a Bible teacher. Like, I'm, I'm a ranter. He's a Bible teacher. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm kind of out here, there, everywhere, a million ideas. He's just a faithful, gospel-hearted, Bible-loving guy. And I couldn't do what I do without him. But he went back to the States in December and he was there till August because of lockdown. So although I, there was two of us held in the church, I was kind of elding it on my own um, in, you know, on the ground. So that required a lot more time. But the other thing which happened is just before lockdown, the person that was running Manumit resigned, leaving Manumit having to sort of like be run as well. And my co-director, Nick, um, he was, uh, he was in Uganda and he got stuck in Uganda cause of lockdown. So I was in a situation where I was held in the church on my own and the coffee business had one, one person had just quit and the other person was in Uganda and couldn't get back for a month or so. So I had to like, just basically prioritize the coffee business, um, just to, just to keep it going. And then God in his kindness, like the coffee business tripled in size over lockdown because everybody was stuck at home and wanted to drink coffee. So, you know, our, our sales went through the roof, our workload went through the roof. Um, but God in his kindness, like we, we just invited in the day before lockdown happened, a young Mozambican uh, intern, a young guy, a theology student, amazing young guy called Paolo. He moved in in March um, and he's like um, gospel hearted dude and also very administratively gifted. And he actually, I couldn't have done either the church, the Zoom uh, services or uh, the coffee stuff without him. So God was very kind. But since then, I'm now two days a week doing the coffee business. I'm probably it's technically two to three days a week doing the church. But at the moment, I'm on a bit of a break from preaching in church because I'm just burnt out, to be honest with you. And Ross came back from America. He was all sort of G'd up. You know, he had his kind of like, you know, he, he had his little, his little time out in the stage. He's like, woohoo. And I was like, oh, bro, God bless you. So last... A week before last, he said, "Die, you're exhausted. Have a couple of uh, you know months off and just do some stuff which is good for your soul." Um, I'm very grateful to him for that. So at the moment, I'm kind of on. I've got an elders meeting tomorrow, but I'm not preaching on Sunday, so I feel like I got a slightly more less um, responsibility than I did. But it changes, man. It's seasonal, and I, and family requires different chunks of my time as well. I got four kids. I coach a football team for one of them. Take you know, take them to dance. Uh, you know, just different things like you're just trying to be a faithful parent, and you know, and trying not to shit wreck my marriage in the middle of it all as well. So just bouncing around, man. I think that's what I like about not being paid by any of them. It means I can. The person I actually fear is God. You know, mm. if I need to tweak things and change things, there's, there's not a contract hanging over my head. And I, you know, not everyone is blessed with that situation, but I think for me, that's probably been a real gift. Well, that, that leads into our next question. Um, I think uh, people watching are going, hey, how does this guy get paid? And that was our question was, if you don't get paid by any of these entities, how are you funded? I know this, but our, uh, our audience does not. Yeah, we, we actually found that like selling cannabis like on the weekends and like uh, and dark evenings was a... Hey, really hey you great. don't just sound like lock, stock and two smoking barrels. <laughs> why is this dikey by those uv light bulbs (laughs) um, you know um people just support what we're doing and they just like give to us and like so there's a church which is my sending church my home church a church called highfields in cardiff and they very kindly just allow people to put money in their bank account with with my name attached to it and there's a, a, a friend of mine who's an accountant. He, he helps me to sort of fill out my tax return forms every year. I'm technically self-employed. But it's one of them things like, you know, 
I think one of the ways that God's going to show me one day that either like my time is done or that you know I you know I messed up or something like maybe that you know people will stop supporting me I don't know but like I just feel that like while while the Lord is putting it on people's hearts to want to support what we're doing then people are, and that's how I've lived for tw- literally since 1999 I've been doing that and um it's just it's just worked because God's faithful and I just like proving His faithfulness and I don't get loads of money like I'm not wealthy you know I got you know a battered car and uh, you know there's I got, I got a tap, a house with four taps and two of my taps in my house don't work, you know, and you know, I want to like, you know, get it sorted. But like, you know, right now we're struggling to get all of a builder, like, you know, but I can't sort of, you know, pay through the nose to get some sort of like, you know, high flying, you know, plumber in. I've got to pick the right person at the right price. I mean, I'm not, I'm not minted, but I'm content. And that's, and that's, you know, that's God's just looked after us. He always has, you know, my kids get Christmas presents every year and breakfast in the mornings. Happy days. Yeah, you know, it's funny because this is one thing for all of you to know, like people have to actually like you. See, people don't like me, so I always had to go get a job. But that whole idea of starting a church, you know, die that was one thing that I, I don't really know if there was another option in Wales, but um, because of so much depression, economic depression, unemployment, stuff like that, um, I think that, yeah, you could start and you could get a pay, but you were never going to get a full paycheck. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted to do it in Wales, you did it for love of the game. 100%, and, man. Uh, like, there's no way you go into church planting uh, anywhere, especially in Wales, for the paycheck. I mean, half my church are asylum seekers. They, they get £37 a week. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, what the heck? Which is uh, like 50, 60 bucks for Americans, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so yeah, there's, there's no money in this, but there's joy. Daniel, you got anything? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm just really uh, uh, blessed and encouraged by uh, what you're doing out there, Diane. Maybe my last question, or uh, not a question, but prompt for you is, um, again, I, I keep coming back to, in some ways, I know the UK is different from uh, America. I know uh, Wales is different from the rest of the UK. So, you know, not all, all of our contacts are the same. But I think you're probably seeing some things um, that are ahead of the curve for Americans. Um, can you speak prophetically, Di? I mean, just, man, just releasing you to, what, what, what would you like to say to, to, to the church in North America in terms of uh, staying engaged in the mission, in terms of, uh, you know, our obedience to, uh, to Jesus uh, as Lord of the church? Um, and, you know, from what you're seeing across the pond in terms of maybe some things that maybe we need to disengage from and uh, in order for us to re-engage in the right thing. So, man, open mic for that. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't know if this is prophetic, but this is, like, I guess, my, my loving exhortation to my brothers and sisters in the States. Um, I think the church has had a seat at the top table for a long time, just like it did in Wales. And I wonder whether it's time to graciously leave that seat at the top table before you get pushed off it. Um, the church was always intended to thrive in the margins. And the way that I see the church, um, the way that God's hardwired the church, is not to gain political influence or social influence or influence through the media. Those things can happen. God can graciously bring that about. But I read the scriptures, I read church history, and what I see is... Ordinary men and women and children who are just thriving against all the odds, often suffering uh, in the margins. And, and the darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. And, um, but I think that if you're the ones that choose to leave that seat at the top table rather than getting pushed off it, you're probably in a better position to sort of like, you know, you, you probably won't hit the floor quite as hard and might be able to reposition yourself where you're meant to be um, rather than like, you know, have to rub your head for a bit before working out what the next move is. Um, that would be my kind of loving exhortation. We were, we were, we were meant to, to, to thrive in the margins. Don't resent that. Don't despise that. Get back into the Bible and realize that you were made for that. You were born for that. And, um, you know, there's some, there's some crazy things happening in the margins. Never gets tweeted about, never gets, uh, you know, um, CNN reporting on it or, you know, um, Sky News. It don't get reported on, but it's happening. There's just beautiful beautiful grace um, being unleashed in the margins all over the world. And uh, I think that that's where we need to be. That's beautiful, man. And, you know, it, it, just along those lines, I, I, I've kind of been amazed. Daniel and I are sitting here behind the scenes and we're seeing, we know the questions we're going to ask you, you know, as uh, we, we have them written down here. This is very much a spirit 
guided conversation. I mean, at each point, I keep wanting to say, wow, that was a perfect segue to our next, next question. But um, I, I feel like I want to ask you, it's completely off the reservation here, but I want to ask you about prayer because uh, one, one of the things that, um, again, is a, you mentioned a few pitfalls with this, and I appreciate Di, your honesty, man, just really being down to earth and honest. And um, if we're talking about um, you know, people hearing this, maybe it's the trendy thing or whatever, but you really put an emphasis today on prayer and seeking God's will, having that vision. You're like, look, this was unique. I've never had this before or since. Um, can you just back up a little bit and tell us about your prayer life and those rhythms and how you seek God and, um, maybe just really bring it, because I think a lot of people are rushing ahead to want to know how to do all this cool flashy stuff. And they're not, taking that step back and going, that doesn't matter unless this is here because this over here, comes out of that. Um, can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, firstly, I suck at prayer. I think I feel like a hypocrite whenever I talk about prayer because I genuinely theologically deep down personally believe that prayer is like the absolute, you know, epicenter of anything significant that God does in this world. I really believe that. I really do believe that like those bowls of incense in heaven that are filled with the prayers of the saints. Like, I don't know how our prayers end up in them bowls, but I believe they do. Uh, what a cool thing to do, like to see your prayer life as filling bowls in heaven that come before the Lord and smell good to him. Like I don't get how that works, but I believe it. And yet I struggle. Do you know what I mean? So my prayer life, you know, there, there are times when I've, I've, got, I've got energy, I can get up in the morning early and just pray, you know, on my knees before I do anything in the day. More often than not, um, I'm exhausted. I crawl out of bed. I take my dog for a walk and I pray to the Lord as I'm walking my dog um i pray to the lord throughout the day i sing praise uh, I th- that might be a welsh thing but i like singing prayers and singing my kind of like petitions to the lord um just not like just walking down the street that'd be weird but just in my car or when i'm on my own i often sing prayers to the lord and at the end of every day um myself and paolo the intern who's still stuck here because of because <laughs> of lockdown um we spend time praying you know um every every evening together as well um I don't think it's a case of though, like, so if I do three months of prayer, then I'm ready to plant the church. Or if I do two, you know, how, how, how long have you prayed? I think that if pr- prayer has to be like what you start with and you never stop, fr- you know, you never move on from. It's not like the foundation stone. When, you, when you've got enough prayer in, then you can get start getting pragmatic. I think that however good you are or not at praying at the beginning of a church plant or at the beginning of anything which you're trying to do for the Lord, that's kind of going to mark what it's going to be like from that point moving forward. So like, and sometimes you've got to pray yourself into praying. Um, you know, and so that would be one thing I would say. There is a scripture, if I just really quickly share scripture just off my phone. Um, this wasn't planned, obviously, so um, I'm just going to quickly call it up off my phone, which I personally find has been really formative um, for both church stuff, but also especially with the kind of anti-slavery stuff that I do. Um, it's in Luke chapter 18, the parable of the persistent widow, which I'm sure is familiar to a lot of people. But I just love, I, I think the first verse of that, um, of, of, of Luke 18 is really, really helpful for those who have a heart for ministry, have a heart for justice, have a heart for reaching out to the broken and the hurting. Listen to this. It says, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And I think the fact that Jesus told them a parable because he knew that A, they probably weren't always going to pray otherwise, and B, they were going to lose heart. Like, that's why he told them the parable. So I just love the fact that Jesus gave us a parable to, to, to meditate on because we want to always be praying and we want to never lose heart in prayer. And yet I'm not always praying and I do lose heart in prayer. I just love the fact that Jesus knew that. So he gave us that parable. So I regularly come back to that parable again and again. And that whole persistent widow thing, we're just meant to like be irritating, you know, like, you know, to, you know impotent. I think that uh, Jesus says in another one of his uh, passages, you know, you might open the door to, to that guy. Cause he's your friend, but because he's, he's an impotent git, then like, you know, um, he, he opens the door and we just got to keep knocking, you know? And so that's why I would see as a huge part of um, any gospel ministry is to, is, to, is to always pray and never lose heart. Even if your prayers are small, weak and pathetic, just don't stop. And if, you know, t- tonight I was coaching my football team and they're all like out, out of shape and, uh, you know, struggling with fitness after the, the lockdown season. And so like, they just don't want to run. And so I, I made them run around the pitches um, to, as, as a warm-up lap, and like half of them just were walking for most of it. So when they came back, I said, "Right, guys, here's the thing. Yeah, I got to make you do that again because I can't let that be a warm-up lap because it was terrible. You just walked." I said, "I totally get. You probably can't run the whole way, but just 
just don't walk jog really slowly but just don't stop running because like that's stopping running isn't acceptable being so knackered you can only jog at like you know snail's pace that's fine and i think it's exactly the same with prayer I, I sometimes I'm like I'm like that kid who really would rather just sit down, but I've just got to somehow keep scraping the bottoms of my feet across that you know that pitch and just keep that really pathetic, awful looking jog going on in prayer because otherwise I'm going to sit down and might not get back up again. So uh, uh, I feel you, man. And you know what? And I, I think Daniel and I both will 100% agree with everything you just said. But brother, uh, we we first time we've ever had as someone asked, they said, "Hey, how can I pray for die?" And we got about 30 seconds, so uh, it'll be a quick. Uh... Simple answer, man. I'm taking some time out to try and refresh my heart and my mind to be there for my family, to be present there. Um, I'm praying that, like, you know, I'll be able to get the right balance, you know, with work, with ministry, with my family. So just pray that God would meet with me through his word and by his spirit. And I would like, you know, by December time, I'll be a, a, a different dude. And if you guys want to catch up with Di and support anything he's doing, again, it's at Di Hanke uh, on Twitter. You can find him out. Do you still have a website, Di? Uh, got, yeah, we've got the manumitcoffee.co.uk. We've got redeemerchurch.org.uk. Uh, I have got a blog, but I never blog anymore, so I wouldn't bother looking for that. Yep, yep. Sanctified Rant. Is that the uh, yes, rad, a rad blog back in the day? So, guys, thanks for joining us today for Frontlines. I've been Peyton Jones. My co-host, Daniel Yang, we want to thank you. And, of course, Di Hanke with us here today. Um, can't thank you enough for joining us, Di. And we thank all of you for joining us on behalf of Exponential. And we'll see you next time on Frontlines. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.